Well, good morning. It's great to be with you this morning. Uh, many of you are aware I, my wife and I moved this week, so I'm a bit tired, and there's a few options here. I could fall off the stage, uh, the sermon could be short and sweet, or I could cry a lot. So I'm voting for option B. That one seems like it'll be the most fun for all of us. Um, but yeah, bear with me. I'm a little bit tired this morning. But we're continuing in our study of the Gospel of Luke this morning. And uh, I don't know if you've been feeling this way, but it seems like every week as we continue through Luke, these sayings of Jesus and the things that he's doing get more and more personal. And I would invite you to hold on to your hats this morning because we're going to be talking about something that is quite personal. And we're not talking about politics. We're not talking about just war theory or sexual ethics or how to raise your kids. We're talking about something infinitely more offensive. We're going to talk this morning about money. We're looking at the parable of the rich fool, and we're going to look at three things in this passage this morning. The fears of fools, me, myself, and I, and real riches. So let me read our passage and pray for us, and we'll get started. This is the gospel reading. It's from Luke chapter 12. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, as we have heard already this morning and saying already this morning, your righteousness alone can cover us. And as we look at another hard saying that you have for us, I ask that your spirit would be in this place, that you would speak through me, that your word would be empowered to change our hearts, to reorient our hearts and our minds and our lives around you and what you find important. I ask that you would be honored in all that we say and do this morning. Amen. So imagine that I walked up to you this morning in the entryway there, and I was being really furtive looking around, and I said, is it today? Are they in there? You would look at me like I was crazy, right? But uh, if we had been in college together, you would know exactly who and what I was talking about. Now, many of you know, even though I've tried to keep this a secret, that I went to a fundamentalist college that makes military school look like a group of hippies walking through a park, okay? 
this school had so many rules that were so rigorously enforced, I started referring to it as the communist bubble within free America. It felt like Stalin's regime. I mean, you never knew who you could trust or who was going to turn you in to the administration for any number of small things. Just to give you an idea of how strict this school was, the music that we just heard this morning was not acceptable. If you listened to that music in your dorm room, you would get demerits, they would take away your music, and they might even kick you out for it, okay? That's how strict these guys are. And one of the things that you had to be very, very vigilant about was dress code and appearance. For example, I am not in dress code for my college that I went to, okay? For guys, you had to be clean-shaven, your hair had to be combed nicely, it had to be cut short off the ears, off the neck, off the forehead, so my hair doesn't even really pass muster. And so every 10 days or so, it was always on a different day, because you, you could never know when they were going to do it, but the entire dean of men's staff would come into the auditorium early, where we would have mandatory chapel every day of the week, okay? And they would stand in the aisles like this, and they would watch every male student that went by, and they would look him up and down and make sure that he was in dress code, that he had a tie on, slacks on, his shirt was tucked in, and that his hair passed hair check. This happened every week and a half. We would have hair check. And so every 10 days or so, my friends and I would be posted outside the chapel waiting, and we would send one of us in to scout out to see if it was hair check that day. And if it was, you would take your spiky hair and put it into a comb over, or you would push it behind your ears. We would use pencils, put pencils behind our ears so they couldn't see how long our hair was. I'm ashamed to say that I would eventually ask my girlfriend at the time or any other pretty girl I knew to walk in with me because beautiful women are distracting to everyone, even fundamentalists, as it turns out. <laughs> now, many of you are, are shaking your heads rightly, thinking, I mean, a haircut? Really? Is it that big of a deal? How could you be so consumed and fearful over such a minute thing? And look, when I was there, I knew that it was insane. And, and looking back now, it feels even more insane. And this was only one out of hundreds of rules and hundreds of ways of enforcing them. But when you're in the middle of it, your fears don't seem that foolish. They seem very, very real. You see, I was submerged in a system that told me how to live. It told me what was important and what I should be afraid of, and my fears seemed completely reasonable. The parable that we're looking at this morning is sandwiched in between an extended discussion on fear and worry. And we, I didn't have room to put the entire passage in our bulletin this morning, but what Luke and Jesus are trying to do is they're trying to get our attention to tell us that we are submerged in a system that tells us how to live, what to find important, and what to be afraid of. And as ludicrous as my fears about hair check were, the fears that you and I have about everyday life are just as silly if we see them from the right perspective. We have the fears of fools. For weeks, we have been listening to Jesus and Luke harp on and on about the kingdom of God, about Jesus' impending death. And with every step that Jesus takes toward Jerusalem, he is a step closer to that death. And the strange thing is, he won't stop talking about money. 
Jesus has just finished holding the Pharisees over the coals. We saw this last week. He, he gives them woes about their use of money and their greed. And he begins to teach the people, telling them to be watchful. Don't let the infection that the Pharisees have infect your life as well. Don't be consumed with greed and pride. And then he tells the people, don't even be afraid of other people when the worst they can do is kill you. Huh? I'm not uh, a master at this, but I'm assuming you're not going to sell a lot of tickets to your next conference if your big reveal is, don't be afraid of other people if the worst they can do is kill you. If you're just going to die and that's the worst that happens, no big deal. Seems very counterintuitive. Without getting too deep into what Jesus is saying there to the people that takes place right before our story here, we can see that what Jesus is trying to alert us to is that there is a clash of kingdoms taking place. The kingdoms that the people were familiar with use the threat of death as their primary means of coercion. Submit or we'll kill you. Join us or we'll kill you. Listen or we'll kill you. As Luke shows us later on in his sequel to this gospel in the book of Acts, he'll, be, he'll make it very, very clear that when the nations conspired to kill Jesus as a way of flexing their power, it was that very act that defeated them. In other words, the kingdom that Jesus is proclaiming could not be more different than the kingdoms of this world. It's a backwards, upside-down kingdom, and it's very, very dangerous to our autonomy. He then starts to tell the people, don't be afraid when you get called in to give an account of the message that you're proclaiming about me in the future. He's talking to the disciples here. He's giving them a heads up that the message of the gospel is not going to be received nicely by everyone. And so don't be afraid when you get called in before magistrates and rulers because the Holy Spirit himself will be with you to give you the words to speak. The Holy Spirit. The Spirit that brooded over creation. The Spirit that empowered the great leaders of Israel. The Spirit that had been promised to be poured out on God's people without distinction. That Spirit, Jesus says, will be with you. And a hand goes up in the crowd. Teacher, my brother's not sharing with me. Really? That's what you're taking out of this? That's what you're worried about? Wealth has its hooks in us so deep that we can't even hear something about how the Holy Spirit of God will come down and empower his people without saying, yeah, about our allowance situation, is that going to be divided evenly or do I get a little bit less than the other guys? What is it that we're so afraid of? And honestly, how is it that, that teaching on materialism from thousands of miles away, thousands of years ago, can translate pretty easily into our own culture. It's because material possessions give us a sense of control. When we have food in the cupboard, money for rent, and gas in the car, life seems pretty okay. So we, we take that feeling of, of comfort and control from our possessions and we start to stockpile them so that we can have more comfort and more control. But the big joke is that the more possessions we stockpile, the more fear we have over losing them. And the story that Jesus tells us here is to tell us that all of our fears over these possessions are foolish 
foolish fears. But the story that Jesus tells us is also a bit problematic. I mean, at first glance, it seems to me, anyway, that, that God seems sort of capricious, almost a little bit mean. What are we supposed to get away from this story? That here's a, here's a pretty decent, upstanding guy who works hard, he gets some pretty good luck, and he just decides to use it well. He's not going to squander this windfall. And then all of a sudden, God says, zap, you're over. Are we supposed to learn that God hates seeing people having a good time? that he hates material wealth, that the actual physical world is somehow inherently evil. Now, there are some who have interpreted this and other stories in that manner. And we don't have time to get into the long history of Christianity and the way that people have interpreted Jesus' uh, sayings on wealth. But there's a couple things that we need to, to make clear, is that even w when looking back to people that took vows of poverty in the name of Christianity— we might look at their interpretation of Scripture and say, well, that's a little overly simplistic maybe. Um, but I think it's more complex than that when you actually look at the individuals who are making those decisions. But on the other hand, what we can't do is just blindly accept this inherited platonic dualism that tells us that spiritual things are much better than physical things, that somehow the material world is evil. That is completely not scriptural. It's not Christian. Here's the crux. The problem is not with material things or material wealth. The problem is with us. God created the world filled with physical, material beauty. And the creatures that he placed in his world, he gave an, an ability, a capacity to appreciate that beauty. Good food, good wine, good sunsets, hiking through a desert and then coming upon fresh, cold water. You really can't look at Mount Hood or the Gorge on a sunny day and get the idea that God somehow hates physical things and he wants us to hate physical things. No, the problem is that we have taken the beautiful things that God has made and we have made them ultimate things. And really, what we do with all of these things around us is we continue to push ourselves to the center. We continually make ourselves the centerpiece of our world. Listen again to the words of this story. The ground of a certain rich man yielded abundantly. Who yielded? The ground. So far, no problems. But how does the man react? He thinks to himself. And in the Gospel of Luke, this is a signal of disaster. And it's not that we shouldn't be introspective. In fact, I think most of us here could probably stand to unplug from Facebook and TV and other media for a while to actually consider how we live our lives and, and kind of be introspective for a while. However, in, in Luke's gospel and in the book of Acts, making unilateral decisions without consulting God or God's people almost always results in disaster. But the rich man thinks to himself, what should I do? I've got all these crops. I know. I'll tear down my barns. I'll build bigger ones. I'll store my surplus grain. Then I'll say to my life, life, good work. Take it easy. The rich man was completely self-involved. You know what's frightening to me? I think most of us read through this parable the first couple times, and we don't even see it 
because we're as selfish as he is. We're so used to thinking about life in terms of me, my, and mine that we can't even see what Luke and Jesus have done for us in setting up just the language of this guy to show us how self-centered he is. We begin to assume that we have earned, we have achieved, we deserve whatever good things come our way. And this is why talking about money is so uncomfortable. It's not because money is bad. It's because we are so selfish and we don't like our selfishness being revealed. And nothing reveals our selfishness like the way we use our wealth. So what do we end up doing? We distract ourselves but by thinking about people that are worse than us. We think about the crooks, the Enrons, the Goldman Sachs, the Bernie Madoffs, people who broke the law or hurt other people in order to get richer. And we think, see, we're not really doing that bad. But guess who else thinks that way? This farmer. He never did anything to break the law. He never did anything to hurt anyone else. The farmer in our story is just a smart, hardworking guy. He's a planner. He sees something good is happening to him, and so he decides, i got to figure out how to store all this grain. I'm going to build bigger barns. And as, as innocuous as that seems, his attitude is revealing our own. Not only does everything he say start with me and my and mine, revealing his self-centeredness in that way, but his very attitude toward his wealth reveals ours as well. We see wealth as an alleviation of responsibility. If I just had a little more money, I wouldn't have to work the job that I don't like. I could pay off my car, I could pay off my house, I could retire. Once I have enough money, all my responsibilities will be taken care of. They'll all be gone. And God says, you fools. Wealth does not alleviate responsibility, it adds to it. And only in a world that is consumed with me, my, and mine could wealth alleviate your responsibility. But this is not how God's kingdom operates. We're going to get back to that in a minute. Here's the sad thing. If a farmer doesn't understand how reliant he is on external forces, then how can any of us understand? A farmer should be acutely aware that if there isn't the right amount of sun, the right amount of rain, if the soil erodes too far or gets too stripped of nutrients, that it doesn't matter how many tricks he pulls, his family could starve that winter. You see how insane it is to feel as if you have everything under control because you've got a full tank of gas or food in your cupboards? It is insane to feel like you have things under control when you have material goods because you cannot do one thing to keep your heart beating from this moment to the next, to the next. What the farmer failed to understand and what we so often fail to understand is that the very life force that allows us to worry and fear over all of these things is not our own. We have no claim on it. God comes to him and says, your soul is demanded of you. It's not yours. Just as you had no decision on being born, you have no decision on how and when you will die. Two friends were having coffee and reading the morning paper. One of them remarked on the death of a famous millionaire in the area, and his friend asked, how much did he leave behind? Reply, all of it. Shrouds have no pockets. 
Hearses have no trailer hitches. It does not matter what kind of car you drive, how many houses you own, or how much money is in your wallet or your bank account. Money cannot buy you time. When your breath gives out, it doesn't matter how much overtime you've worked or how well your stock portfolio looks. Even if you can afford the best team of doctors in the world, tonight could be your last night on earth. And what will it mean? What will it mean if you have spent your whole life worried about hair check? God will say, you fools, you didn't get it. Does that mean that he's being a big meanie? That he's capricious? If you were to come to me and say, Steve, don't lose sleep over hair check, okay? It's not a big deal. There is a whole world out there where you can have any kind of hair you want unless it falls out. Would, would any of us think that, that you're being mean by telling me that? Of course not. Friends, God is not capricious. He's not a fun hater. He's not ants at a picnic. Jesus was called Rabbi Lush, the drunken rabbi. He could probably drink any of us under the table with wine so good we've never even heard of it. God is not a killjoy. He is trying to tell you the things you get so consumed with, so fearful and worried about, are ludicrous. There is a whole world out there, and you have been working for monopoly money. Let me show you the real riches. So what, what does it mean to be rich toward God, or more literally in this passage, rich into God? Well, it's sort of like when you were growing up, if you were ever fighting with your siblings, but then you would try and go tell your parents that you loved them. I'm sure your parents said the same thing to you that my parents said to mine. If you love us, you're going to love your siblings. Show us that you love us by loving the people that we love, valuing what we value. To be rich toward God has very little to do with big, showy displays. Jesus has just finished explaining that to the Pharisees. Again, we looked at that last week, that their showy tithes weren't impressing anyone but themselves. No, being rich toward God is to value what he values, to love what he loves, and to give of yourself as he gave himself to those things. To be rich toward God is to be invested in his kingdom. The place where real riches are found is in a kingdom that is coming to bear upon the entire world. God's kingdom is upside down. It's backwards. It's a kingdom where loving your enemies makes more sense than killing them, even if it means they kill you. In a, in a culture, in, including a church culture, where PR, networking, and influence trump everything, we have got to allow ourselves to be slapped in the face with the reality of God's kingdom. And we've been dancing around this week by week as, as Jesus keeps telling us story after story of his kingdom, but I'll just come out and say it this morning. If Jesus is the king of this kingdom, we have to look at his methods. And if he is the ruler, then that means us as his servants are not going to have it any better than he did. Show me his use of wealth. Show me his use of power or coercion or heavy-handedness. We're going to see in the coming weeks that Jesus gave up his claim on everything. 
He gave up his claim on his own life, and he did it for people that hated him, that rejected him, ridiculed, and mocked him. This is the king of the kingdom. No clothes, no home, no life. He relinquished it all. He opened up his grasp on all of it. So if you are a part of his kingdom, this is what you are called to. Relinquishing your grasp on things that you so adamantly assume are your own. Friends, the response to the parable of the rich fool is not to just sit back and stop striving. It's to stop striving after mud pies. It's to start striving after something worth striving for. It's to stop striving out of your lack and your insecurity and start striving out of the surplus of everything that God has already given you to strive for his kingdom, knowing that Jesus has done it all. It's to use your resources as stewards, not owners, and to use them for God's kingdom. And his kingdom is a kingdom that chases down and embraces the poor, the outcast, the lonely, and the unlovable. Don't live your life worried about things as foolish as hair check. God knows all of your needs. Live out of his riches and live richly into him. Let's pray. Father, when we come face to face with how selfish we truly are, it is, it is a difficult moment and we can think of any number of excuses as to why we should lay claim on things that we perceive as ours, why we should not loosen our grasp. But I ask that as we come to your table and are fed on the very loosening of Jesus' grasp on his own life, that we would realize that your generosity will lead us to be deeply fulfilled people. We will be embraced by you and embracing your kingdom as we let go of all of our material possessions to use them as you would have us to use them. I ask that we would be changed by your spirit as we come to your table. Amen.